welcome back. This is episode 81. Actually, that's what I would say if I had uh, continued to uh, do these after my last one, which was on January 11th, 2021, some 70 weeks and uh, seven days later, roughly. So I guess 71 weeks. Um, I took a break. (laughs) But uh, I was thinking, you know... um, you know, uh, Stranger Things has been off the air for like three, four years, maybe three years. People are like, hey, we, 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 come back, come back. We're so excited. And Barry on uh, HBO, that was off for a number of years. And people are like, come back, come back, come back. And it's back and people are watching it. So, um, yeah, I'm back on Too Lazy to Write. And, uh, you know, what's been going on since January of 2021? Yeah, not so much. Nothing really, you know. <laughs> I cannot, as I record this, I speak directly into the mic, but I cannot hear me in my headphones or something wrong. I don't know what's going on. But uh, I'm glad uh, that you're maybe listening. I hope you are. Uh, there's been a lot of activity here in Virginia in the Baker House. We got a new kitchen. Yeah, that was a f- fun thing because everything is... Um, is dependent on the supply chain and the supply chain isn't really working that well not even going to get into it i'll get into it maybe at another time when i can figure out how i can hear myself in my ears because it's kind of weird not to hear yourself when you're talking into a microphone but you've tuned in not to hear me and i've rambled on for about a minute oh you want to know something i did do since uh since january 11th 2021 uh, in January of 2022, I uh, took a course at the Missouri Auction School, and I became a um, graduate of that school, and I am now a certified uh, auctioneer. I just don't have my license yet in the state of Virginia. It's a test I have been meaning to take, but I'm scared I'll fail it because I failed my driving test twice, once, and I'm scared I'll, I'll fail this test, but I'm going to give it a try. But I can auction. Um and uh, I'm not going to do that, though, for you right now. Because what do you want to hear me do that for? You probably do want to hear me do that, but I'm not going to do it. So um, what I'm about to tell you is what the episode is about today. And the episode, today's episode, I've actually been waiting probably close to two years to uh, interview my guest. And I was lucky enough to speak with him. I have to thank my friend Barbara Leggetti, uh, and Barbara was actually on the last uh, podcast I did. Barbara was instrumental, very instrumental in hooking me up with my guest and my guest today. You are familiar with him. If you um, if you traveled abroad anytime after 1975 uh, overseas. Um, you probably were, uh, his book was probably a cautionary tale about, uh, smoking and smuggling hashish back into America. And, uh, who am I talking about? Well, of course I'm talking about Billy Hayes. You know, Billy Hayes as the author of the best-selling book, Midnight Express and the Academy Award nominated film of the same title, Midnight Express. Um, Billy served five years in a Turkish prison uh, from October of 1970 until he escaped some five years later in 1975 and found his way back to America through a series of um, really impossible uh, circumstance. He made his way back to America. And um, since, you know, this is now uh, over 50 years ago, that he was arrested and coming up in, in uh, you know, in three years, it'll be 55 years that, or, yeah, that he was, uh, that he had escaped. Billy is an accomplished writer, director, actor, uh, speaker. He, uh, he had a one man show about his, um, his experience uh, in Turkey in the Turkish prison, um, which he was all set to tour with. He had done, he he's done this show a number of times um, in Scotland, uh, in, in London, England, in New York, he's done this, you know, show all over, 
all over the world and he was actually getting ready to you know go at it again and then uh COVID hit and he was um you know unable to do it so what did he do well he worked on his new book called midnight express epilogue train keeps rolling and i've read this book and it took me two days it's it's you don't want to put it down uh billy clarifies a lot of what was said about him and written and uh and actually interpreted rather erroneously on uh in the in the film midnight express um but he he does it himself he he explains it himself why would i bother trying to explain it i've probably butchered this enough already so without any further ado my interview with uh with billy hayes author of midnight express and midnight express epilogue train keeps rolling uh, which is available on uh, Amazon. Uh, you can order that on Amazon. And um, well, here's the interview. Enjoy. How are you? Hey, good, John. Oh, great. I'm so glad this worked out. I, I yeah, I got this uh, Google Voice app, and it it, it provides uh, a much better connection than anything else I've tried. So I'm glad. I'm glad because this is all so beyond me. It's that part of my brain. I mean, I just I don't I don't like to use it. As Wendy says, yeah, you know, you won a, a national merit scholarship in math back in high school. Like <laughs> they announced, you know, they announced it at the end of the day. Blah blah blah. They said William Hayes. It's like everybody looked at me like, what? It's like I'm really really good at math. I just don't like it. I don't like my yeah. brain in there and all of the tech stuff. It's there for me. I want to be on the other side or wherever it is other than the tech stuff. But it's it's kind of a cop-out because you've got to. These days, it's like just everything. How do you promote yeah, I mean, shit for? No, I, I absolutely I, – I mean, I know. I, I thought when I started my podcast, you know, it was going to take me two weeks and I'd have, you know, followers galore. I don't. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know what you do, but when Barbara says I should talk to somebody, I'd talk to them just because, you know, uh, it's Barbara. <laughs> I've been yeah, together I, for, for quite I, a while now. I actually, I want to thank Barbara uh, right off the top for for uh, putting us together because I've been hounding her for oh a little over a year and a bit I think now, and I think I've hounded you a little bit over this. Yeah, time you know, the, I've been I've been doing all through COVID. Really, the only thing I've been doing is working on the book because there's obviously no theater and all the projects that I've had with Barbara, like everything was on hold. You know, it was yeah. maddening. Nobody's making any any money. She's just crazy. And it took me forever to get the book finalized because, you know, Wendy's editing and producing it. And that's just, we have other stuff in life that was going on. So I took, you know, patience. I, I know all about patience. I just don't have any left. I used it all up a long time ago. Anyway. But, but I, I want to ask you, because right yeah. away uh, off the top, uh, right before COVID, I, I, I saw an interview on YouTube that you did. You had done your show, your one-man show. Uh, in mm -hmm. Las Vegas, and you were ready to go. You were like, okay, guns are blazing. I'm, I'm hitting the road. We Is did the show in Vegas, uh, I think like three nights just to get a little buzz over there because we had planned to come back and, and do it there. And then, you know, I lived in, in Vegas and we came here and we did a one night thing here in Vegas with the same intent, which is to put it up here, which is be great. I live here. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have to think about traveling or, or hotels or any cost. It's just I drive to the theater and I come back. Um, that that went off really well. And then in the uh, what's it called the 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 big newspaper here, the, uh, the LA, LA Journal. Oh. No, no, the the and LA, the uh, anyway, the, the biggest newspaper in Vegas. Um, they opened. They did a new magazine. They wanted to like expand a bit and. Uh, the the journal, the review journal, that's what it is. Okay. It's like, and it's the biggest paper here. It's run by, what's his name, the biggest right-wing supporter guy who owns the whole town, Sheldon Adelson. But oh, they yeah. wanted to do a, a story on sort of like the New Vegas. I mean, this was the new new magazine they were putting out. And I ended up getting a picture on the cover of this magazine of me sitting up on the rocks up here in Redwood. I love the photographer who who came out to take it. And I was just like kind of blissed out on these rocks out here. And they used that as the picture on the cover of the brand new magazine. That And then I, this guy did this great interview and it was in there. And 
this magazine gets delivered to, I think, like 375,000 subscribers of the paper, et cetera, here in Vegas. So they all get this news, this magazine plopped down onto their their porch, um, like on a Monday morning, with my picture on the cover and this great story about me in there, and we're getting ready to, like, open the show, try and find the venue. That is what we're looking for, and then promote the show. And, like, here's all this free publicity. That happened on Monday morning. Tuesday, Vegas closed. <laughs> COVID hit. No. Everything stopped. It was like, no, no. I used to jokingly yeah. say, nuclear war. No, no, no. I have a show opening this week. It's like, yeah. first of all, I can't say that anymore. All during the Trump era, I was afraid to say that because it was so <laughs> insane. And now it's like, oh, like, it really did. I can't believe COVID, you know. So for me, yeah. I, you know, people died and their lives were ruined. It was just an inconvenience creatively for me because I was so ready to keep moving and such. It, but it got me back into the book, and it got us working, and finally we got the book done. So life is happening again. The book is out. I'm, I'm, I'm loving. I love being isolated. I didn't mind the isolation of COVID. I mean, you know, I've people say, you know, how did, how did you deal with all that isolation during COVID? It's like, wait a second. <laughs> you know who you're talking bad? to? Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is not bad. I have Wendy here. Who, you know, if we didn't kill each other during that whole time, it made us stronger. And she's yeah. a great cook. So oh. I, I, we had all this great food, and I like being alone. I enjoy myself. I, I find myself quite humorous. <laughs> she said, you don't need anybody except an audience once in a while, which would be yeah. nice. But, you know, the book helped me a lot. It helped focus a lot of things that I was needing to follow up and fulfill. And I I, I kind of wanted it to be a a bit of a testament to, to my folks, to my family, my mom and dad, who... Yes, God, I did get that from us so much. I just, you know, it just is so, such an idiot, putting them through all that. And so I wanted that to be in there, because people ask me questions about, well, what happened, blah, blah, blah. So it was a good chance for me to fulfill. Now that it's out, I need to be talking, I need to be out, I need to be interacting with people. I would love to get the show up again. I I truly love doing that show. So yeah, we'll I, see. I, I'd hope so. I'd love to, to, to see it and to meet you. But we're talking, of course, about your new book, Midnight Express Epilogue, Train Keeps Rolling. Right. And, um, and like I said when, I, when we first spoke, it, it took me two days, like two, two, two sittings to <laughs> read it. And uh, one of the things I really love, and we just mentioned this earlier when we spoke, was the, the brevity. The, the way you just talk so succinctly uh, and emotionally at times about important events in your life, important people in your life. You summed up your father so beautifully. Uh, you summed up your relationship with Brad Davis, uh, the actor who played you in the movie yeah. so beautifully. And is that something you've, you've learned over the years is just to know when to cut it? I hope so. <laughs> As a writer, I hope so. Um, I have Wendy always looking as an editor you know, forcing me to, I'm a New Yorker, I talk nonstop, I kind of write nonstop. I need to focus and slow down and uh, eliminate that which isn't necessary um, because the real stuff, that that should be enough. When I get down to what is, for me as a writer, I find myself in places where I'm kind of on the edge of tears. <laughs> and mm. like, that's good. that's good for me. It cost me. It should, I think, it should cost me every scene, every, not, you know, certainly not emotionally overloading anything, but the truth. And especially when I'm talking about stuff that means a lot. And, of course, I'm, when I'm writing about my family and that kind of stuff, it meant so much to me that I just wanted it lean and true and tried to make everything like that, especially since it wasn't, you know, the book stretches over many, many, many years, a couple of decades, yeah. kind of just yeah. filling in and where we go, as opposed to today this happened and tonight this happened, you know, like the first book, where I did a lot of that day-to-day kind of stuff. To to do the whole span, you know, this isn't 1,010 pages by what's-his-name. I just, I needed it <laughs> succinct, and um, there was a couple of themes and storylines that I wanted to, start with and then weave through and then they start to amplify against each other and eventually going back to Turkey and such and raising the Turkish 
flag, which to this day is still so amazing to me to come around to raising. Who would have ever believed that I would be raising the Turkish flag? It's like, God damn, life I mean, is so strange and wonderful. Especially, especially you did this on uh, Turkish Independence Day in New, in New York, right? Yeah, the, this was all arranged by, well, the gentleman in the book who I talk about who yeah. really got behind it. You know, when I did the show, he complained. He, you, by the way, you have to stop me whenever you want because I just <laughs> ramble endlessly, especially when I get by this shit. When we when we did the show in New York, he had heard about it, and you know, he's very politically active and such. And I think he contacted Barbara and the people and the, the other producers, and he and Barbara contacted this uh, this Turkish gentleman and said, you know what, I, I we understand. The play deals with that very issue about, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, please just come and see it. He came and saw it. And he loved it. He then brought back a bunch of Turkish representatives. One, one show, I'm, I come out on the stage, I look out, and I see these four gentlemen in black suits and ties, and their arms are crossed, and they're like, one of them was, the, you know, the, the ambassador, and another guy was, you know, a, a military head of the military forces here, and they're all like just arms crossed, legs crossed, staring at me. I knew that's the people that they brought in. and But then after a little while, they let their arms loose. They got into it. I saw them start to laugh. They understood what it is that I was wanting to do. And so Turkish people were coming to the show, which was just great. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, he kept doing this. And then the one thing about raising the flag, I just thought, no, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> really? But, uh, you know... I wanted it. I was afraid, I, I, as I said, I was afraid the post or somebody was going to say, you know, Billy Hayes, now he's coming back, he's raising the flag. But, but then it was like, you know, fuck them. I don't care about that. I really wanted to do this. And there was a symbolism connected. Again, I, I made three successful hash smuggling trips before I got busted on my fourth trip. I loved Istanbul. I loved the city. I loved the hash. Yeah. I loved the energy, and I knew the history. And you know, I'm an English major and a journalist. I I knew all that stuff when I got there. I had a Turkish girlfriend. I mean, I loved that place. Yeah. Then I got busted, so I saw a different side of it, and obviously, it, it changed things. But the movie, all you saw was the bad side. So they they took my book, and I couldn't write about my first three trips. Obviously, in right. in, in, in my first book, which. It was okay, but it really put a damper on what I could say about Turkey. So none of that was in the movie. And then, of course, they did their own stuff. And then Oliver Stone got to write yeah. the, the speech in the courtroom that was just, you know, I've had, they told me that, that courtroom scene, that speech is what got the Interpol war. They didn't do it when I escaped. They didn't even do it when, when the book came out. When they saw that scene and they heard me cursing out the Turkey, well, first killed the guards and, cursing out the Turkish people and Nation of Pigs, I fuck you all, I fuck your sons, I fuck your daughters. And, you know, again, that's that's what the the world heard me say, fuck your sons and daughters, where in truth what I said was all I can do, don't ag- I won't agree with you if you're going to sentence me to more prison, all I can do is forgive you. That was all yeah. I could do. That's The only control I had of anything was how I responded to this, which is the truth yeah. of everything in life. Things happen, we decide what they mean and how we respond. And, the anger and the, the the screeching and the the screed of of stuff that Oliver put into Brad's mouth that the world heard coming out of my mouth, it it was such a turning point in a lot of things. My relationship with Turkey it wasn't great, but after that it was horrific. I was a hated man in Turkey. They put the interval warrant out my arrest. You know, I was afraid after that. It was it was so bizarre. Um, well, you talk a lot about that in the in the book about when the Interpol uh, warrant, I guess, was 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 put out on you, and your fear of of going back and going to the Turkish embassy, and you you were thinking, this is it, like I'm I'm going back, like yeah, back here. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, that whole uh, you know, from the Yankee Stadium, claim your prize, and you get there, and you get the traffic yeah. ticket, the buzzer ticket. Exactly. That was, that that stuff was like it was there, but I also knew. The last thing the Turks want is more bad Billy Hayes publicity. They want the opposite. You know, we're trying to yeah. do something different. I was trying to connect and heal this whole thing. And so I knew that's what they wanted. I also knew, like, the last thing they, they would do is try and set me up and bring me back. I mean, please. Right. Right. So, well, but, I mean, but as Michael Griffith, the lawyer, said, that's, and, and when we got there, that's 
that's logical and that sort of works, but this is not logic. This is the world, <laughs> and it often your logic and your plans don't work out. And with me in Turkey, that was a very big truism. So I wasn't quite sure what it was going to do and where it was going to go, but I also knew, you know, I'm, as the older I get, the more I trust in my instincts, and I I just knew this is the right thing to do. Do, do you think and uh, and because you just mentioned the older you get, do you think had you not escaped, uh, you wouldn't have seen 75? Probably not, only because there were so, you know, there were amnesties in the wind. They had an amnesty where, like, certain sentences got reduced, and, I, like, my life sentence was sent down to 30 years. And then the 30 years, they had some kind of another amnesty, but not for the hash smugglers, for the killers and the rapists and shit, but oh. not for us. So we... I still would have had, I think, like 17, I think, if they took, because every, every sentence you have, a little complicated, any sentence you have in Turkey, one-third of it automatically goes off. They sentence you to 30 years, you have to serve 20, and then you go free. Oh. Unless you do something in that 20 years <laughs> that warrants right. they, they get rid of your info. So, you, you're, so it's that big club hanging over your head is the, the one-third of the sentence. So you, that hopefully keeps people in prison not doing stupid shit or killing people or trying to escape, which is yeah. where I was. Because if I try to escape, fuck, then I lose that other third. So how long I was going to be in there, I didn't know. What I did know, I was getting to the, the to the end. I was getting to the point where, like, one way or the other, I'm getting out of here. Like, oh, I, okay. Yeah, you know, it, it prison, it... It makes it makes it kind of like down to kind of simple choices after a while. Prison is real simple. Living on life out, out in the world is so bizarre. I mean, there's a million things you, you choose. You can do this, do that, go go here, go there, do this, don't do that. Be with people, don't be with people. Jail, you don't have that many choices. Like, you're there. You're with those people around. You don't like somebody. You can't get further than about 32 paces away from them. Like, right. you have to deal with people in a situation where, like, 80, 90, 100 guys in a cell block and just all of them are and boiling and angry and drinking tea. Hey, you get, get 20, 30 cups of tea down you a day. These guys drink tea constantly, wires them like motherfuckers and they're all locked up together. So uh, it, it was an interesting situation as a writer to observe people and to kind of watch people. And there were guys I could I could watch people and just know this guy very within 24, 48 hours, this guy's going to explode because yeah. <laughs> things are happening or he wasn't getting what he wanted or there was mail that didn't come or his, well, God forbid, one of his kids, there was this one guy had a kid who was killed and like he, he lost it. He literally went insane. And the, the whole thing is like that all the time. And like, I'm taking breaths and I'm doing my yoga yeah. and I'm trying to stay still and centered. It was an interesting time of, of self-discovery, sure. a necessary well, time for me. What, one of the questions I wanted to ask, this is before I, this was like a year ago when I first started my, my writing of, of the questions and reading Midnight Express again. Uh, so you went into prison at 23 mm -hmm. um, and you got out, it was five years later you escaped. 28. Oh, 20. So you're 28 when you escaped. Now, in those five years, did you feel that like, uh, like that your emotional growth was stunted physically? You, you know, you, you, you gained muscle, you, whatever happened to you in, in prison. But emotionally, did you come out still as that 23 year old or were you caught up? Oh, no, actually it was, uh, again, I'm, I'm, when I get real serious, I find myself making jokes like, always. Oh, I was always the class clown. Got me through so much stuff. Got me in so much trouble, but got me through yeah, a lot of stuff. And, yeah, it's like uh, suddenly my mouth is going. And so I just made something really funny, and everybody's laughing except one guy who's looking yeah. at me like, I'm going to tear your fucking little blonde head off, asshole. It's like, oh, no, my mouth did it again. In jail, I discovered you need to deal with people. You need to interact with people. And... I, I'm, I have such a quick trigger, and, and I used to be very fast, and I would do martial arts and shit, so I wasn't too concerned about the fighting part of it, but the anger part. The, the anger is... In, in Turkish jail, if you and I get in a fight, and the guards rush in, and I'm all bloody, 
they beat you so you're bloody. Or if you're all bloody, oh. they beat me so I'm all bloody. It's like, you can't win. Right. That's how they kind of like even things out. You got to get in, you got to get out, you got to get away, blah, blah, blah. So like fighting anywhere is is bad. But it, it emotionally, I, I learned that I could take a breath before I act. <laughs> unless Unless there's an imminent threat coming and you kind of like, it's, I used to be a lifeguard, and the people are screaming and yelling, and a girl they yelling and stuff, all that noise and stuff. But if somebody really goes under and they come up and they scream, it's so distinct. I mean, it's all the noise and people. I, I like that. That's a real one. Well, yeah, jail's kind of like that too. Like there's a lot of arguing, there's a lot of back and forth, and then there's something that's like this is going to get real bad real quick, and here it comes, and then you have to act with stuff. But most of the time. There's time to take a breath. <laughs> and I find, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you speak of that a lot in, in, in the new book. You you talk about taking a breath and... and <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, breathe in, breathe out, repeat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, it's one of the things I need and I learned that helps me a lot. And whenever I'm giving, you know, you have advice for anything, it's like... uh I used to do these college lectures and go to high schools and the advice says, yeah, tape it under your arms. They'll never search you there. <laughs> and like, she's like, what, what? No, no, no. The, my advice is do what, do what you like and know what you're doing. And knowing what you're doing means you take responsibility for your actions because you have to deal with the consequences. And I never really, I was just running so footloose and fancy free. After my first smuggling trip, holy shit, like I'm golden, they can't touch me. And the yeah. second one, third one, so by the fourth one, it's like, you know, I, they'd blown up the jets out in the desert, so I knew security was getting more increased, but I still did it anyway. I was so invincible. Right. I was so fucking stupid. And then the world collapsed on me, and even even the first night in prison, I locked up in this place, and I was thinking, how, what am I, how am I going to get out? What am I going to do about this? And the next morning, the American, not that he was an American consul, but the Turkish guy actually who worked for the American consul came and visited me and brought me up from the depths of this nasty prison to a visiting room and talked. And he he told me the situation, and he gave me a piece of paper and a pencil. And he left me alone in this little room to write a letter home to my folks. And that's oh, the letter that I have at the... Uh, at the start of Midnight Express, the letter that I, I had to write to them, that's when it really, yeah. that's when I could stop, couldn't fool myself. I'm real good at fooling myself. I couldn't, just couldn't do it anymore. The reality of what I've just done, the fact that not only have I fucked up my life and put myself in jail, I just put my parents, I just put my mom in prison. That was a smash in the fucking face so hard for me of what I've just done. And it was sort of the beginning of, Waking up, growing up, uh, you talk about emotions, like taking responsibility for what I've done. Because that was yeah. a, I did some bad things, but like that was a really bad thing. You know, if you back your car out of the driveway and your mom is there, and oh my God, you hit her and you break a leg, that's terrible. You take her to the hospital and they, and they fix her up and she gets a little better the next day and she gets a little better and she eventually gets better. It never got better. My mom yeah. never got better. Every night she went to sleep with this pain because of me, and we didn't know what was happening. It, you know, it took like 14 months before I even got my first sentence. And even then, with the four-year, two-month sentence, I had years left, and I was trying to escape and all this stuff. And then, you know, when I finally decided I, I'm going to spend, after my friend was killed, I decided I'm I'm done trying to escape, and I'm going to just focus on getting myself settled and and finding the lessons that I obviously I need to learn, all that karma stuff that I used to read about. I'm like, you know, I'm a child of the 60s and karma and it all comes around. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I hear all of that except I had it so easy. <laughs> Life was so fucking easy. First off, I had amazing parents. I didn't even know how good they were until I started seeing other people and their parents. I had wonderful parents. They kind of mm -hmm. set me up for trusting the fact that I can do what I need to do when I need to do it. And they gave me space to do that, and they gave me room to do that, and they probably re regretted it <laughs> at a while. But I had a self-sufficiency, and they always encouraged me about, you know, everything I did. So I felt kind of like sort of ready to do prison and to learn what I needed to learn. I yeah. didn't want it. I wanted to get out quick, but 
it, it was sort of like time for me and lessons that I needed to do. But then it was, you know, after a year or so, it was like, okay, I've learned what I need to learn, and now it's time to go. <laughs> and right. after two years, it's like, well, now I really learned it's time to go. And then three years, and then four years. And by getting around to five years, phew, I knew uh, if I don't do something, I'm I'm gonna break. I'm gonna I'm gonna harden. I'm gonna, I'm gonna whatever. But uh, you're quite come way around to your question of would I be still in there? Um, I'd I'd have been there for a while, and I'd have done something that would have gotten me killed or more sentence or something. Um, but I I would have also lost something. You you lose things. Jail jail is twenty four hours a day. You're a loser. You are a loser. You're a loser. You're a loser. That's in your head all day long. All day. And you look around at the people around you. You're like, they're fucking losers, and you're with them. You're a fucking loser. And that shit seeps into you. And after a while, phew, that can do really corrosive things yeah. to yourself. And I see people kind of like they've been there too too long, and they lose it. And I was sort of at that point. Something was going to break. Something was going to change. I needed. I mean, what is it, uh, Gurdjieff Uspensky, there's this whole chart of things flowing around in circles and at points you have to in, input some energy into that point in your life to keep things moving or else they fall back, blah, blah, blah. This was an incentive point. This was an insertion point for me of energy. I needed to be free or be dead. That's that's really what, again, coming back, to, it was pretty simple. I'm, I'm free or I'm dead. Not going to get caught. I'm not going back to jail. That settled things and, a bit. And then I got lucky. Obviously, when I'm hot, I'm really hot. And when I'm not, I am really not. So I either go from a life sentence in jail to escaping and having this book and shit happen, which led me to Wendy. That's the best thing that ever happened to me. And that, you met her, if I'm not mistaken, at, at the premiere of the film in in, uh, in at, Cannes? At the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And 40 years ago. Or, or more, I guess. Oh, right? God. Well, I think it's 42 this July. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's what I, how could that be? When, so when, when this was happening to you in, in, uh, in the 70s and you were in, in the Turkish prison, you said you had a lot of support from your parents, but I'm wondering, how were they treated back home? Were, were people, you know, crossing the street to avoid them or, or? No, but on? it was, it was so hard on them. My dad was such a, Oh, my dad is such a straight and all the good context of that term. He, he never lies. You know, he's, he's, he's got the respect of all the people around him and such. And he had the, this is his, all the paper. Everybody he worked with, everybody he talked to knew that his son was in jail for drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, drugs, cannabis is, is legal. It's a healing plant that we've been using for a thousand years. The whole attitude has changed. Back in 1970, it was drugs. It was bad. It was heroin. It was all of the worst stuff. It was drugs. And he had to deal with that all the time. And my yeah. mom, of course, too, she kind of, it's a little bit easier on her because her friends kind of like supported her. Nobody gave him any grief, but it was there all the time. And that was so hard. Can I ask you, um, because Alan mm-hmm. Parker was one of my one of my favorite directors. He, he did Birdie mm-hmm. and he did Angel Hearts, two of my favorites. Incredible director. I, I want. Can you speak about a, a relationship you had with him or or a friendship? Um, <laughs> Alan was a brilliant guy. He was also uh, kind of a what's the word. I'm trying to be diplomatic about it. That's okay. Uh, he's a, well, let me see. I, I've had great directors tell me that he made an amazing movie, even though he was a pompous ass. I mean, that was, okay. that was Billy Friedkin telling me that, you know. So Alan, right. Alan did not suffer fools well. Brilliant director. Fascinating Renaissance guy. Um, and he made an amazing film. He, he made, he made some creative choices and changes, like in the ending of, you know, the escape and right. and they've got me killing a guard, which Alan, Alan Parker changed. Oliver Stone wrote the guard getting, me beating the guard to death with a stick. That's the first script. Alan Parker changed that to an inadvertently having his head hit that spike in the wall. So I oh, okay. didn't really kill him, but that's Alan changing him because that's part of the change of escape. I said to Alan look, early on, like, what happened to my rowboat? What happened to my escape? You know, that rowboat right. off that island literally gave me back my life, gave me back my sense of self. And he said, well, Billy, what's 45 minutes of 
of the movie do you want to cut to have your real escape? They've had enough. Get the audience out of the bloody theater, which as an actor, as a director myself, I understand that. That's his choice. So, okay, yeah. that's what he um, – I would have preferred to see the real escape, but he made an amazing movie. So, again, what would we cut to put in the rest of the real escape and the, the, the exciting – I knew as soon as this whole thing would ha- start happening with, with the book and then the talk about Hollywood, they would if, – if nothing else – They'll do the real escape because it was made for Hollywood. <laughs> for sure. they didn't oh, absolutely. Do it. Yeah, but they didn't even do it. It's like, what happened to that? So I hear his answer. It's like, what forty-five minutes you're going to get rid of to get an escape? He made a movie about about prison and hope and fear and blah blah blah, and not giving up, which is great. And Brad Davis was amazing. He put his heart and soul into it, and you know John Hurt and and, and mm-hmm. Norbert, and it was, they did an amazing thing. Um, I had some problems with the attitude towards the Turks, which is an Oliver Stone thing. You don't, again, it's a little difficult because I didn't write in my first book any of the stuff that I liked about the Turks. All I had was this one, the fourth trip, and I'm busted, and now I'm in jail. So I'm seeing another side of Turkey, I'm seeing different Turks than I met on the streets. But I couldn't talk about that stuff to sort of ameliorate the, uh, the whole attitude towards Turks in there. But I didn't have what they had. They had this... That courtroom speech, it was just brutal. And that's, yeah. everybody says, that's what Billy Hayes said. Fuck the Turks. Fuck their sons. They're a nation of pigs. I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, I forgive you. But the world heard, fuck the Turks. And I've been living with, what, forgive you, fuck the Turks, forgive you, fuck the Turks. That's a big teeter-totter. Well, the whole world heard, fuck the Turks. And the the, the thousands of people that have heard me doing an interview or seen my, my show where I talk about this kind of stuff and mention I didn't say fuck the Turks. I said I forgive the Turks. They're like, really? And then and you you escape. You you didn't run out the door and jump in the air and kill that garden and click your heels in the air. It's like yeah. I wish it was that easy. It would have taken me five years. No, I had a different escape. So all the people have said, why didn't they do the real escape? Well, that's Alan's kind of answer. Not to mention the cost shooting at night in the water, in a rowboat, right, running through Turkey and, and crossing a minefield and swimming across yeah. the Maritza River into Greece, it would cost them a lot. I think this movie was made for like $2.75 or something big. That's not even the craft service budget yeah. <laughs> on these bigger movies. And that's what they made it for, which is why when it actually hit and did well, we all did well. It's amazing. Right. Isn't it? and, and how many times over the years have you been compared has your story been compared to that of uh, Papillon? Oh, I hear that a lot. You know, All the time, huh? Yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, Papillon's an incredible story. I read that book somewhere way back, and of course, the movie I loved. And... Yeah. Speaking of, let's go to pop culture for fun. Um, uh-huh. wh- what are you listening to? What music do you listen to? What do you do to relax? I mean, I know you do yoga. Um, I listen that's... to probably the least amount of music of anybody you've ever interviewed. Really? <laughs> Yeah, I don't have, I don't have music around me. I, I, music affects me a lot. So if I have it around me, it affects me too much. I feel. Um, uh, if I listen to anything, I've got some jazz and and sixties stuff uh, on on my computer somewhere, on my phone somewhere that Wendy found for me, and I'll yeah. play that. Um, when I'm writing or like focusing, I have uh, one of those nature things, and I listen to the ocean. Of the, uh, okay. the ocean waves, because I, I love, I've always lived by the ocean. I love the yeah. ocean. So I listen yeah. to the ocean most of the time while I'm writing and, and such. And occasionally, there'll be some music. When Wendy comes, Wendy's going to cook a dinner somewhere, and she's downstairs, and she's got the wine bottle open, and she's cooking, and she'll play, you know, Jackson Brown, some, some 60s rock and roll, which is what we, we listen to mostly, or jazz. And that's what okay. I like. But I don't really... I don't know any of the current music. I'm so out of it. It's amazing how far out of it I am. I yeah, kind of got I, stuck uh, in the 60s. And then when I came back, everything was so changed. And, you know, I, 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 I hear I hear hip-hop and rap, and I see what an amazing cultural phenomenon it is. But it just doesn't work for me. I have my biggest critique of any creative piece of any sort is if it's boring, and I find rap and hip-hop boring, and people say, well, you can't look at this, try and look at that. I say, I, I hear it, I see it. It just doesn't work for me. I'm glad for the guys who can do it. I love the whole stories of these rappers coming out of the streets and, you know, suddenly becoming millionaires doing their stuff. Great. Yeah. I actually, well, you know, from my 
my book. I was going around the uh, with the, the West Side Connection. I was driving a van oh, for yeah, those yeah, guys for a while. You, yeah, you were. There, I was just reading a passage where you talked about uh, like following ice cubes uh, tour yeah. bus with your with your uh, bus, or truck full of. Yeah, they had some radios. special lights that they needed. And they were very delicate, blah blah blah. And then they had other stuff in there, and they had that box of the white. Long stem plastic roses. And I, right. You know, I, I said, what are these for? The guys just looked at me like, I saw what they were for afterwards. <laughs> these girls yeah, so, coming back. It was amazing. So you, you called yourself an amateur pimp in that. In that yeah, 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 de facto pimp or something like that. That's right, de facto pimp. That's, <laughs> wow. You know, um, I, one of the questions I wrote was, your book put the fear of God into anyone traveling to Turkey, myself included. Because um, yeah. I, I went in uh, the early 90s, and it was – as we're we're heading over there, uh, it was always in the back of our mind this whole Midnight Express mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm actually. That's a double-edged sword too. It's like right. don't be so stupid as to get busted in a foreign country. If you didn't know that before you saw my movie or read my book, now you know it. So like, there's yeah. my little piece of good on the karmic scale, balance it a bit. But the truth is, it also created it killed Turkish tourist industry. Dropped like ninety five percent when the movie came out and wow. it really hurt them economically in a lot of ways and psychically. I mean, the world hated Turkey after that movie. So many people were down and said, what well, you're saying, I'll never go to that country. We hate the Turks. Like I, they didn't need me to create an animosity with the countries around them. It was the Ottoman empire. They were brutal. They were cruel like any empire. And right. they had a lot of, uh, residual anger from all the countries around them, essentially, with their, their mortal enemies, Greece and Bulgaria, all those places. But I added to it. Like, suddenly, everybody has seen, and it was very difficult for them in many ways. And, of course, it, it, it balanced back on me. I had Turks who, like, wouldn't even talk to me, who hated me. Uh, and, uh, but I found it, as you did, an absolutely beautiful country. God, yes. With amazing people. Yep, um, yep. And the food, of, and oh, the culture. The, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We one of my favorite memories was we were in, uh, I think it was uh, Ankara, Ankara, Ankara. Sure, Ankara. Yeah. And the little hotel we were staying, I was like, it wasn't a chain; it was you know it was just a, a local. And the owner told us to where his bath was. He sent us to his Turkish bath. Uh-huh. So it wasn't the touristy ones or anything. And which is good, right? Yeah. And I said to my fr- my friend and I went afterwards, I said, I've never felt so violated and so relaxed at the same time. <laughs> Speaking of Turkey, there's a book just flashed on me called um, Out of Istanbul. And it's a series okay. of three books. Out of Istanbul, it's a, it's a French journalist who was a foreign correspondent and a guy who was like really out there and such. And his wife died and he had this terrible turning around in his life. And to ease it, he decided to walk the Silk Road about 7,000 miles, and he started out of Istanbul, and then he goes, the third and the fourth book, or second and third book. But if you have any interest in that sort of stuff, I found it fascinating. A 62-year-old guy who was walking 20 or 30 miles every day across that landscape with those people and that whole incredible book. Yeah. Out of Istanbul, yeah. I had to read it slowly because it exhausted me. I also know the land the land he was in and sort of the the culture of the people, especially in the beginning as he made his way across Istanbul and into Iran a little bit. That was always my one of my alternative escape plans was to get out of prison in Istanbul or off the island down there. And instead of heading west where everybody would think I would go, go the other way and get into Iran. This is, but this is back when, as an American, you can kind of do that. You know, okay. now it's like the frying pan and the fire jumping out of yeah. Turkey to get into Iran. But at that point, I, I, you know, I looked at the maps and I knew the railroad crossings and where to go and just making so many fucking plans of escape, escape, escape until I stopped them and my whole life changed. When I stopped trying to escape and get out of jail, it became a different place. It was, that's when, oh, emotionally, that's when I began to also learn more and, and have the yoga and the meditation and, you know, I had, had now I had like ex- two years and something months and I could cross it off and I'd already, my friend died so I'm not gonna do any more stuff to get out. I'm just gonna stay there and deal with it. And prison became a much better place, easier place for me to be. 
and emotionally, I, I could deal with it. But I, I had a calendar. I knew I'm going to get out at this amount of time, and I'm just going to live moment to moment in this in this day. And that changed everything. I mean, it still does. If I if I remember it, if I don't get too wound up about shit, it's like in this moment right here. I'm healthy. I'm alive. I'm free. I'm breathing. Nobody's beating my feet with a stick. <laughs> my wife yeah. still loves me. Everything. This is all gravy compared to whatever. So I think that that period sort of gave me a little perspective on what I was experiencing and and learning and sort of putting it together for me. And you, then they changed the the sentence got changed. So all of this calm that I was finding I was holding for myself suddenly was sorely tested by suddenly instead of going free, I'm now sentenced to life in jail. But yeah. that 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 uh that ability to take it in and breathe and kind of focus on stuff and uh not get spun out of control, um that that gave me some tools to work with. That's what yoga is. It's kind of a tool also to help your body and your, your emotions sort of allow your mind to ease into it or the other way around. And it, it was a good time for me in that respect. But suddenly I've got to get out. So the switch, when the escape switch went back on, I could use all that good balancing stuff to get the fuck out of jail because yeah. I'm not going to die here. That's the biggest fear people have is to die in prison, to never see the outside again. Phew. Was um was that sort of yoga uh, and spirituality part of your life before you you went in, or did did you discover um, it there? I, well, I, you know, I was a hippie and I was always a happy guy and I had a life, nice easy life. I mean, it really did. Between the parents, which started me, and school, which was always easy because I could always get A's and shit, and I was on all the sports teams and I was pretty, so I got the girls. Life was real easy for me until it suddenly it wasn't. And it yeah. forced me to, like, reevaluate a lot of shit. And this whole, uh, you know, white American male entitlement thing, I didn't even know what that was. I had no clue what it was. I just accept, accepted all of it. And so suddenly, when I got arrested, everything changed. <laughs> you know, my, 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 my life and my social position and my life, the languages and the foods and the customs and the laws, everything changed. And I had to change with it. <laughs> and that right. was very interesting to find. I'm, I discovered that I'm actually very good at change and adaptation. I don't like it. I fucking hate it. it. But if I have to do it, and prison forced me to change and to adapt and to discover things and discover strengths and weaknesses, etc. And I learned a lot of important, valuable stuff from me that life really hadn't forced me to do. All my problems and big quotes in life before jail, they weren't really problems. They were like a, kind of a middle class American kid who was just kind of cruising through stuff. Uh, I avoided yeah. Vietnam. You know, a couple of my friends went and several didn't come back. And I just, there's no way I was going to go to, I protested in the streets and no way I was going to go to Vietnam. And when I, they finally got my draft notice, I went down to Whitehall Street and I fasted for two days and ate a chunk of hash the size of my thumb and told the army shrink the absolute truth about everything I thought about life. And he sat there for about 20 minutes, and then he signed a piece of paper. He said, don't call us. We'll call you. And I got a one-why deferment. And again, I'm still waiting for them to call. But uh, right. I kind of took that as a, as a – if the Army didn't want me, I took that as a badge of honor. But, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to avoid all of that stuff. And avoiding getting shot in the head my first day in Vietnam, like one of my old friends who – Full full scholarship to Michigan State. This guy I used to wrestle with. And he was there like two months. And he said, fuck this. And he joined the Marines and off he went. And the first day he got shot. It was like, I am not going there. I'm not no. going to get into any of that stuff. Instead, I went and got locked in the Turkish prison. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, you know, you, what is it? You want to make God laugh if there is one? Uh, <laughs> tell him your plans. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I'm going to jump over here for a second. Yeah. The, uh, so you're a writer, a director. You're going to be able to try and edit all of this this rambling stuff oh, I do down to no, something just, coherent? Oh, it's going in as is. Maybe I'll break it up over two. That's what I'll do. <laughs> and then I'll edit it right here. No, but I want to know, so you did the you did the Beckett play. You've done your own work. Uh, you've done uh, Cock and Bull, the, the, the movie that you directed and wrote. Mm -hmm. and, and a whole bunch I'm, I'm leaving out. Um, do any a lot of, of theater. Stand, 
yeah, a lot of theater. Do, do any of, of, of the theater works or, or the film work that you've done, do they, does one stand out above another? Um, I, I loved doing um, Shuffle, Shuffle, Step, the Beckett play. It was yes. a unique that was a great, great was part of the book. To me. Yeah, and, and yeah, as an actor, it was, and as a time, you know, Wendy was away and living in New York, so I was living alone and I was doing my stuff and I would, you know, rehearse during the day, do Beckett at night, and then play poker till till dawn. So my life was right. like that for months and months, which wasn't bad. And I loved the play. I loved doing that play. Um, I take it you're a good poker player, then. I think so, but everybody who plays okay. thinks so. You know, you you talk to people. You know, how do you do? Did you win? Did you lose? You break even? Yeah, every, everybody breaks even. Nobody nobody loses. Everybody nobody breaks loses. even. Wait a second. <laughs> Somebody loses because people win. Um, did I tell you that I'm, I'm entered in the World Series of Poker this year? No, so that'll that'll be oh. on, that'll be televised. Yeah, the CBS okay. Sports is televising it. I'm entered into the World Series of Poker by Hemp Inc., which is a cannabis company. They love the concept of a guy sentenced to life in prison for cannabis now entered in the World Series of Poker main event by a legal cannabis company. So I've already <laughs> talked to them. I've got the uh, the ten thousand dollar cashier's check from the company, so I could, you know, I know it's there because I tried this yeah. like before. But at the last minute, something happened. They couldn't do this. The other vice president said we don't want to do the blah blah blah. I got the fucking check. I said, guys, if I'm going to move ahead and put put myself out there <clears throat> and start talking to people about this, which we are now, we've got some interviews coming up next week with Poker News, which should be fun. Wow. Um, I'm going to be in the World Series of Poker, which. I'm going to be able to promote my book too, which is a, a nice thing because, as you know, it's hard to promote. You know, yeah. I want to get on one of the big, big TV shows, but I, I don't know how to do that anymore. I don't have agents anymore. I don't have, you know, Barbara does most of it, but even she's sticking around in the dark trying to make things happen these years. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah, I'm not I a 22 year old influencer. <laughs> that would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever they do, oh, they influence yeah, yeah. people, I guess. Not me, but I guess they influence people. So you're not on TikTok and you're not on Snapchat and all the no. things my kids are doing every day. No, and I'm, they even got me on, on Instagram, and I, they find I got a couple of pictures up. I don't even, I can't, I can barely keep up with Facebook. Fuck Instagram, and then they got me on Twitter. Yeah. Billy Hayes hash. I've never posted on Twitter. I don't even want to be tweeting. This dog don't tweet. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But I should, because it's like. It's if I may ask. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm curious about your niece uh, in Israel, who's mentioned quite a bit in the book. And has she learned any more languages? And that story is so fascinating. Oh, good. Well, she's a trip. No, the last one was Czech, but they've moved from there. They're actually, where is it? He is now, he went to, uh, he was a cantor, then he went to rabbi school, and he finished that, and then they were in Berlin, and I believe they're in process, or they've actually just done it, to uh, to move to London. So he's going oh. to get a, a, a synagogue or whatever. I mean, there's something there that he'll be doing, and she had to go to, like, uh, Mrs. Rabbi School, but she knows more stuff. I used to have a poker game. I played for like 30 years in L.A. with all, all Jewish doctor friends of mine from, okay. from New York, from back out. It, it's interesting because I feel like I'm half Jewish. I grew up in New York. Half my friends are Jewish anyway in New York. I got a whole bunch of Jewish relatives, and I've been in the film business. So it's like right. I, and now I get this niece who just converted, and as my Jewish doctor friends all tell me, there's nobody worse than a convert. She knows every holiday. She's got everything. She puts this, this aluminum foil on the counters on certain days. They got You can't go out of the house without on certain days. With yeah. You can't carry a purse or something. Yeah, I, I yeah. Said, what? And she said, but, but if you put it in your pocket, and she walked out, and, and now I'm getting to the point like where me and the Catholic Church, when they tell me something, and my logic just said, stop. And I said, so, wait, wait, wait. So God doesn't know that you have that purse in your pocket? And when he's like, leave her alone. Don't, don't be bothered. I was like, whatever. Like, if it works for her, I ran from religion. And the last thing I wanted was the more religion. She ran to it. She oh, taught herself yeah. Russian. She wanted to convert. She, she worked to get to where she is. She married there. She now has five kids. <laughs> they live in London. And she's smiling. 
Whatever yeah. it is, it works for her. Like, good. I can barely even think about it. But the kids are amazing. And she's smiling. So this girl knew what she wanted. And she, last thing I heard was uh, check. Which is, I said she didn't like check. It sounded bad okay. in her mouth. She didn't want to say okay. it. Well, my daughter actually is, is heading to Israel uh, in September. She's going to seminary for a year. And wow. my wife and I are pretty sure she's she's coming back religious. <laughs> We're pretty sure. <laughs> you know, for some people that works, uh, I just think you need to keep your your mind about you and be logical and rational. And the people that I know who who have found something in religion, it's for me, it's the, it's the heart of all religions, which is love, which is the only thing that's real truth as far as I'm concerned. And if you can find it within whatever religious structure you have and that's what they want and that's what you want good go for go for how let me ask you this Mm. how how do you forgive how do you let something go how do you let a a a life-changing uh event like what happened to you how do you forgive that and and move on nelson mandela who i love nelson mandela wrote if you leave prison and you don't leave the anger and bitterness behind you're still in prison it's like, that's true. You just can't keep that shit in you. I learned I couldn't keep anger and all that stuff in me. It's, it's, it's too it's too corrosive, especially because I am so emotional. And mm-hmm. so the more anger and stuff, then the more emotional and stuff. I, I, I just can't let that be unconscious in my life. Because that's what it is. And if, if you're conscious, you don't allow that. But it's the unconscious. When you get thrown off someone, you're not thinking and suddenly... This has happened for me. I mean, not now. I'm 75, but when I was young, suddenly, like, things would escalate. And suddenly, all this shit has happened. And it's like, wait a second. What the fuck? What happened now? How, how did I get here? How did this shit happen? How did this situation just come about? I, I, I don't have that much anymore. I'm much more mellow. I've got a wife who pretty much I discovered, you know, early on to not argue with her because like you know you, a relationship you've been married you know you have to like learn yeah. to live together and learn the idiosyncrasies and she's this and you're that and make all of these adjustments and shit like it was really hard for me in the beginning because I, I all I had was like me I was so self-centered all I had to deal with was me I had relationship I let the girlfriends and stuff but not, not like this so commitment for me was so hard. I mean, I jump off mountains, I ride motorcycles, I smuggle hash, but commitment, oh my God. And that's what, oh man, and that's what Wendy demanded. Like, you know, she, she was okay, she gave me time and stuff, but it was like, if you don't step up, I'm stepping away. And I knew I've made mistakes in my life, but letting her go and not stepping up would be the biggest mistake I would have made. So I kind of stepped up and once I did, it was like, yes, this is exactly what I need to do with my life. And it was, uh, again, 42 years, still working, <laughs> still working on it. That's, that's a long answer. I don't think that's the question you asked, though. I get lost. No, no, it, it was about it was about forgiveness. But um... Oh, yeah, 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 forgiveness. Well, again, Mandela, he said it, I read it, I also knew it, and I discovered in truth, that's really all I can do, because anything else hurts me. <laughs> you know, it yeah. just, you don't forgive if you don't let all that anger and bitterness go. You're not hurting anybody else except yourself. <laughs> and like that yeah. doesn't make sense to me. The world's tough enough. Don't ha- don't add to it. Like, goddamn, let that shit go. I I know I'm jumping everywhere, but I doesn't matter. Things pop into my head. You yeah. had uh, an opportunity. Uh, you had people champion championing for you, I should say. And one of those people was Atlantic Record founder Ahmet Erdogan. <sighs> yeah. And then it took a very bad turn, obviously, when he passed away. Yeah. But how, how, how is that? That must have been really quite an event, meeting him and, and getting to tell your story to him. He was an amazing guy. Again, um, Wendy's, Wendy's cousin Don, who introduced me at Wendy at Cannes, he, uh, he was, he was married for many years to a Jill Chastain, who was in the music business, who knew Ahmed, who had all these things. And when things were getting difficult with the, um, with the documentary, so to get back to Turkey, because that was the key part of the doc. Mm-hmm. You know, there were so many people that, but to really, as Sally said, this is the cum shot. If you, we don't get you back to Turkey, you know, this this is what the film needs emotionally. So it's like, I said, well, you know, maybe we, we were actually thinking about it because we we're having so much trouble. Like I said, Tony and Sally would go back and they would film things. I would be 
in, in Greece, literally in, as close as I can get to the Maritza River on the Greek side, you know, where I swam, when I escaped, yeah. I eventually swam, because to be in the woods there, and they'd film me talking about stuff, and they would go and film, and they'd say, yeah, you know what, but it's still not you going back to Turkey. It just, so that was a big problem we had, so when, when we got to be able to do this, uh, they were thrilled, I was thrilled, and I lost the thread now. There's a specific question. I'm at Erdogan. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. And, <laughs> and the only way we could get back, it seemed, was when Jill introduced me to Amit. And Amit, you know, he was the guy. And when, when we still, the filming we did was terrific. It was really a nice piece. And he was ready to go. And he said he'd put it up on TV in Turkey again, which wouldn't be a problem because he owned a whole bunch of stations there. Right. And he's truly a hero in, in Turkey. So that was our way in, and then he died, and it just, the bottom fell out, and a couple of months later, my dad died, and like, things were, things were tough, going in a strange direction, and I kind of gave up on going back to Turkey. It was like, we've been at it for years now, and we tried this stuff, and and emotionally, I was always kind of push-pull, and yes, I want to go, and it'll be good, and no, I don't want to go back, and oh my God, what could happen, and you know, several friends of my law enforcement friends, guys who, an old uh, boyfriend of Wendy's from way back who did, you know, kind of Army Ranger stuff in West Point and then uh, stuff that he couldn't say what he was doing, that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah. he was a good friend. And when I needed things, I would call him. The One of the Interpol warrant things, if somebody said this, somebody said that, I called him. And the day or two later, he said, my guy says, and I would know that I, I got a good read on things. And he, one, he was one of the guys that said, you know, this is great, and I love the fact that you want to open your heart and go back. And there's a lot of people there who would be thrilled to put a bullet through your head mm. and even be on fucking camera and let people see them doing it. So yeah. you need to think about what you're doing here. I said, no, no, I know that and. He said, yeah, I know you know that and. And from my end, I'm just telling you, be really careful because there's a lot of X factors and you going back. You're going to open your heart and embrace the people. Not all of them are going to believe that until it happens, so be careful. And my guys in Turkey, you know, the Kamil and people who got me off the plane and such, they were they were very much of that mind. It's like they do not want. First off, they're sticking their fucking necks out for going to be back. This was, again, I got turned down. My visa got turned down. We got all the way up to Erdogan. He turned me down. I think they had some drunk minister somewhere who they bribed or whatever, and they got me this five-day, you know, pass. I'm on the fucking list. Me and the terrorists, I'm on the no-fly list, and they still got me in. So they were sticking their necks out, but these guys were true patriots. I Erdogan, I just can't stand that. He's he's like Trump in terms of his attitude, his politics, and he's killing Turkey. But but these guys were real Turkish patriots. These are the guys who wanted to do what I wanted, which was to heal this thing here, to have me come back and say the stuff I got to say. And it worked. It was good for them. And, you know, it didn't blow up in their faces, which it might have done for a lot of different reasons. So I admired the fact that they had the nuts to do this. And, of yeah. course, I wanted to come back. I'd always wanted to come back. I, I just, you know, I dreamed about I don't so much anymore. I used to dream about, you know, floating to Istanbul and shit. And it's like, this was a chance to do it. So, yeah. Unbelievable! You know what? Let's let's call it quits there because that was a, a a perfect ending. Okay, good. Look, but you I have my numbers. You knew that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know what? What Sally was doing for the doc, she, you know, she couldn't find an ending. This thing went on. She started doing this. I forget when it was like twelve years or so. She was filming this fucking thing. It was stop and start and go and here and it never quite got finished until. I raised the Turkish flag, and that's when you know, we all knew that's perfect ending for this this documentary, and that's kind of where we ended it. And then we got really lucky and got into Cannes again, which for me and Wendy, that's a full circle of love coming sure. around, and all the French reporters just love that whole aspect of it. And for me, it did feel full circle and completion in my life, and then of course in my book, I got yeah. to feel like uh, here's the completion that we wanted here. So. That's that was a good thing. Uh, you have my phone. You've got my email, yeah. especially any I questions do, yeah. you have, send me emails. I'm I'm I easy will. and uh, okay. talk to me when you need to. I hope Oops. to continue this. Yeah, I um, I want to if the if the show goes back on the road, let me. Oh know God, inshallah, from your lips, I hope so. I hope so. Thank okay, you. Billy 
take care. All the best to you. And Pleasure. We'll talk soon when we need to. Yeah, so that's it. That's uh, that's my interview with Billy Hayes. Uh, once again, I, I need to thank uh, my friend Barbara Leggetti for uh, helping arrange that. Uh, you can find out what Billy's up to on his website, billyhayes.com. And like I said, you can find his new book, Midnight Express Epilogue, Train Keeps Rolling. Um, that's available on Amazon. and Or you can go maybe into your uh, local bookstore and say, hey, I'd really like to get this book, a hard copy of it. Um, like I said, it, it took me you know two days to read this thing. It was just really a, a riveting read and what a life that man has led. Um and I'm going to maybe try to get another one of these out in two weeks. <laughs> we'll see. Or maybe it'll be another 70 weeks. Who knows? One, one can never tell. But listen, I want to thank you for coming back and listening to all of that. Uh, Billy was fantastic. Again, thanking Barbara for that. God bless. She was a, a guest of mine, a good friend, um, just a, a wonderful person and really was able to help orchestrate this. And, and she's working on a few other uh, people I could talk to, and I'm looking forward to that. So thank you for listening to Too Lazy, Too Right, the podcast that comes along uh, once every year and a half. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on uh, the Too Lazy to Write website, the number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word right.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the real John Baker, or you know, on Facebook. We're probably friends, but if not, seek me out. Thanks again. I look forward to talking to you, and uh, have yourself a great week. To listen, to write,